The main part of the design is really initially about the documentation of data warehouse tables and columns, and then the what I would call context information. Who is the owner? Like, what are the other tables that are that look similar? So there were what I regarded as the fundamental features of the product that we needed to have. Uh, at the same time, for the design perspective, we did have other features too. I would say even now, some of these features are not implemented yet. My name is Shinji Kim. I'm the founder CEO of Select Star. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Shinji Kim built the tool that takes you beyond the data catalog and makes discovery easy. All this and more on Code Story. Shinji Kim was born in Korea. Her family moved to Canada when she was 13 years old. She likes to hang out with her friends, watch movies, and likes to be outdoors, skiing, hiking, or doing yoga. She recently tore her ACL, though, which has put a damper on her physical activity. While she studied at the University of Waterloo, she was able to work with many different well-known companies, Facebook, Sun Microsystems, and Barclays. In 2014, she started her first company called Concord Systems, focusing on distributed stream processing. This was eventually acquired by Alchemy, the largest CDN network in the world. We joked about the day it went down because it felt like the digital world went dark. At Alchemy, she worked with large enterprises and saw that there was a problem around data discovery, and that it was growing in the middle market as more companies migrated to the cloud. She decided to build an automated way for users to discover and understand their data. This is the creation story of Select Star. So SelectStar is an automated data discovery tool that helps everyone to find and understand their own data. This is a company I decided to start about a year and a half ago, actually March 2020 is uh, our incorporation. (laughs) Coming from the experience of uh, first being a data engineer, software engineer, analyst, product manager, uh, working with data, it was always important to me to have the right context. Uh, I noticed that a lot of companies, as they are growing and as they are uh, starting to expand their businesses, they get to a point where they have so many data sets in their data warehouses and BI tools or visualization tools. It's very hard to understand the real true context of data. On top of that, a lot of teams, like data teams, are starting to have their own, not just the uh, data analysts just a, that as a centralized function, but different operation teams like sales, marketing, customer support, having their own analysts, creating their own models and visualization makes it very hard to manage and organize data internally. I thought this is a problem that enterprises used to have because at Akamai, I worked with large enterprises, mostly focused on consumer electronics companies. I saw that this problem is something that's starting to grow in mid-market and 
a lot of tech companies as more companies are moving to cloud data warehouses and decentralized model of managing data. That's why I decided to start SelectStar and it's, it's been a good ride so far. <laughs> We've been working with companies like Pitney Bowes, Opendoor, and Handshake where they have accumulated tens of thousands of tables and thousands of dashboards. So being able to help their data analysts, data team and um, ops people to be able to find what they're looking for faster and also finding the right information without having to ask other people all the time has been very interesting. Well, tell me about the MVP. So that first product you built, tell me how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. When I started my quote-unquote like customer discovery, SelectStar was just one of three ideas that I had in the data space. And I initially talked to a lot of different companies, target user, meaning like the data platform managers, to understand what may be the most challenging area for them uh, day to day. And data discovery definitely came out multiple times. So uh, what I actually initially did was creating a design mock of how this product would look like and would act. And I just started getting feedback from that design uh, uh, from the like the potential users of the product. And that's kind of how I recruited my first 10, I guess, beta customers. After that, you know, so once I kind of validated that this is needed in the market and then the way that I'm approaching it makes sense to the target users, uh, that's when I raised our uh, seed round and then started building the actual product. Even now, the product that we have that our customers are using looks very similar to the very first mock that I had. I don't know if I should call that the MVP, the design mock, but basically the V0 version of the product, I think have taken probably like two, three months from there. Uh, very basic version of the product. And then we just started iterating from there. So you, you built a design mock to essentially get your feedback and gauge interest, right? Which is faster, you're not coding, you're, you're, you're slinging, uh, you know, paint on a screen, right? And then you built your MVP, uh, so that makes total sense. And, and I hear you saying your MVP kind of reflected a lot of what was in the design mock as well. Yeah, the design mock was a very high fidelity mock. Like I could have just like put some, you know, like click part to make it as a prototype as well, but it wasn't like super necessary. And the, the MVP itself was exactly just the like design to a real product. With the design mock and the MVP, the V0, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about you know what sort of features you're going to limit yourself to or with the MVP portion of it and what sort of technical debt you're going to accept. So tell me about some of those decisions you went through and or you had to make and how you cope with them. The main part of the design is really initially about the documentation of data warehouse tables and columns, and then the uh, what I would call context information, like who is the owner, like what are the other tables that are that look similar, uh, lineage, things like that. So there were uh, basically kind of like what I regarded as the fundamental features of the product that we needed to have. Uh, at the same time, for the design perspective, we did have other features too, like you know, internal analytics or business glossary um, 
So I would say even now, some of these features are not implemented yet because what we did was we I decided that uh, we are going to focus on first building the very initial fundamental features. And then as st people start using our V0, we will either add new features or improve the ones that we have. And that's kind of like the path we took. So for instance, data lineage is a feature that we had at a very bare bone version in the beginning. But it is a feature that the customers kept asking for uh, or um, we saw a lot of usage from. So that is a feature that we continuously improved over time uh, so that now it looks a lot more advanced than my design mock that I started with. Um, so I would say these are some of the trade-offs that, that you make along the way as you work with different customers. Um, and obviously there are features that um, uh, like metrics, something that we wanted to have from before, it got delayed, but now we have like an initial version of so next steps then and you're, you're kind of starting to starting to tee up the question already so how did you progress the product how did you mature it you, know, you talked about getting feedback on the features and making them better right how did you build your roadmap and figure out okay this is the next most important thing to build with all that all that feedback i think one of the hardest part of a startup is that you have so much to do and you have to pick and choose you have to rank sort your priority eventually. <laughs> so we do this based on kind of like both top down and bottoms up model. So top down meaning uh, I have a set goals of types of features or integrations that we want to achieve during the year, the quarter, the month, the week in general, like a type of like goals that we want to get to. But then these things are changeable based on like an important customer deal we want to close or a, a specific bug that is affecting multiple customers uh, or better improvement that we can make easily from where we are today. So those two things need to be combined together in order for us to decide what are we working on next week. So how did you go about building your team and, you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? So I've worked with many different types of people and teams in the past. So when I was working in tech companies as an intern, like I've worked with like five different companies. Uh, also when I was working uh, as a management consultant, you know, many different projects, different settings, uh, working in a startup and starting my own company and also running a team of engineers when I was at Akamai, we're all in different areas. So I think I kind of started to develop the type of people that I like working with. And it also uh, is coming from like knowing what I value from working with others. In general, I, I very much value uh, being open and transparent. Also, I prefer having people that have a common goal as the main uh, driver. Uh, so I think these are just some of the things that kind of got 
ingrained in our culture because that's kind of how I work. But the way that we started in the beginning, like a lot of other you know startups, I was introduced to an engineer that was working on a different startup with a friend of mine, and he was looking to basically thinking about what he needs to do next as they uh, were winding down their company. So I had uh, him join in the beginning. And then the second engineer uh, that uh, joined me, I found him on Hacker News. Uh, it's very random, but I was looking for a very specific uh, skill set of a person that can build a SQL query parser. Uh, and while I was uh, looking through the job board on Hacker News, um, I decided to contact him and you know we hit it off from there. But both cases, there was a like a coding challenge. So right now, and this is the same as before and now like slightly changed, but in general, our hiring process is that after the initial interview, you have to do a quote unquote like take home assignment and then we do references after. So we don't do like a full day interviews with like bunch of people because like we're a fully remote team and we want each person to be independent uh, and can uh, execute and also be able to communicate asynchronously and work with others asynchronously without having to be in the same room all the time. Both of the engineers have gone through those challenges to basically kind of initially proved that, that they had these skills and then the rest of it was going to be more on the reference interviews. In the very beginning, I had another engineer, very senior engineer that I was working with that came through a very uh, high regarded referral. Um, and uh, him and a few other friends of mine also have helped out on the side on vetting some of the uh, uh, engineering skills uh, or reviewing our coded examples or not examples but more like exercise that they've done so that's kind of how we yeah find it it's like a, both the skill sets but also we uh, take the refer uh, references pretty seriously so I think um, being able to understand how that person work with others what they're motivated by and what are the areas that like they we can support them to grow are some of the things that I try to find out during the reference call. Well, let's switch from team then to scalability. So, uh, did you build this to scale efficiently? And this is this is post design prototype, right? Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you finding this kind of as you grow? I think it's a little bit of both. When we first designed or when we were first building the MVP, because I had a very high fidelity design of this product, when my first engineers were building the product, they knew that there was a lot of parts that needs to be decoupled from like a traditional like a application model. We look at metadata and uh, we also parse out metadata from SQL queries to attach and build relationships between those. So uh, every time you're looking at a table, we can tell you where did the table come from? Who are the top users of this inside the company? What are the dashboards that were built on top of this? And how are people actually utilizing this uh, data set inside the company? 
that all comes from having our own mental models of, you know, if there is a table, there are also queries, and then there are also kind of like data sources where it belongs. There will be also users and user activities. Like, so a lot of that, uh, it, it had to be built, like a, kind of architected in the right way uh, in the beginning for all of those features to run. Hence, it's not like we build only one feature and you're trying to modify the model. We already had that map of uh, most of the features uh, in plan. So when they, when they, when uh, our first engineers were designing the product, they kind of uh, had to build it in order to scale it, like you know, a, a, as an application. At the same time, it was a monolith model. So I'm not saying that this is like scalable like to millions and millions of customers today, right? That part is also something that you can move towards more like a microservices approach that we can do a little bit later. Like today, uh, we already, you know, have a move to running everything on EKS with Terraform. So it's all programmatic. And, you know, we are starting to scale different parts of the systems so that like ingestion uh, can run more smoothly and uh, you know elastic search can be also de decoupled like things like that so the data model itself uh, was uh, designed so that it can scale easily for the scaling out the infrastructure side is something that we are starting to now work on so that we can process more information faster i would say one of the things that also helped is one of our first customers was Opendoor, and they have a lot of metadata and a lot of SQL queries, like they run close to a million every day. That really stress tested our system, both on front end, back end, and our data model, really end to end everything. Because when, for instance, like your data lineage model run, and it's trying to load up uh, hundreds of tables all at the same time. It's just not like, you know, feasible for any user to wait or like sift through just because they have too much data. So we have to basically iterate uh, different ways of displaying lots of data and how to make it more interactive to also making the performance to be uh, faster on both front end and back end. So yeah, I mean, it's still an ongoing effort, I would say. <laughs> we are uh, trying to uh, get it to a point where it can uh, scale further. I don't want to dig into anything proprietary, but I'm curious. When I think of SQL, accessing SQL and you know, running queries, writing queries, things like that, I'm trying in my head to find where the metadata is. Is that some like trace logs? Is there some logging that you're mining? Where does that sit? Every data warehouse is different. But most data warehouses first have information schema or system tables that contains all the database names, schema names, table names, column names, where they belong, what the descriptions look like, things like that. So that's the main metadata tables that we use. Data warehouses like Snowflake has a query history view uh, that has the log of all the queries that have gotten executed inside the Snowflake instance. For a database like Postgres, uh, it is a setup that you need to run. Otherwise, because uh, you just generally don't have as much data for some uh, like a logs. So you have to create your own ways to like log that on your own. 
yeah, same with like something like Redshift, you have to enable your uh, activity logs in order to start seeing those data. So yeah, it's each each data warehouse is like. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with Select Star, what are you most proud of? Just everything about the progress that I've made with my team. Uh, primarily, it's the you know team's work because I it's not like I'm quoting every day. Every team member that we have in Select Star today have all joined us from many different paths, uh, which I think is unusual <laughs> compared to a lot of Silicon Valley companies. But they are all working fully remote. They are all very reliable, very independent, and they all love working together. And I think that's really something that I'm very proud of. And I really just, it's, it's a fun, it's a joy to work with them all. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team respond to it. I mean, there are so many mistakes that I've made, uh, I, I, you know, but at the same time, I think it's like inevitable, right? When you're running a company, uh, so I guess if it's something related to the team, um, like, you know, so for instance, I can talk about like small features that we built because this was something that customers have asked for, but I decided to shut it down later because uh, I didn't think it made sense. So the very specific example of this is that we have a big search bar on top. Some of our very early customers really wanted to have a search bar on the sidebar as well to filter out what they see. But I felt like this was like, you know, really going against the user flow because like, which search bar then do you use? We ended up getting a bit of it at the end of the day. And I felt bad about it, especially for the engineer that have worked on this because this was not an easy feature to build. But the fact that this overall long term wasn't a fit, you know, was the main reason and like they completely understood that. Other mistakes that I think happens and also will probably also happen is sometimes uh, we realize that some people that join us may not be a fit. I had to part ways with a couple of people in the past of, that were a part of our team before delivering that news and for the team to take that is really hard. One is that they built some relationship with them and if anyone's leaving then it's it, you know it, it still has a lot of impact. And also we have so much to do so like what, what, what am I gonna do now like if you know the other person can't take care of this anymore you know I take that responsibility of like not being able to find or knowing that it you know it wasn't going to be a fit early on. We do as much as we can to try to understand whether this candidate is the right fit. And also once they join, we really try to uh, give them all the support to so that they can be successful in our company. But sometimes that may not happen. Sometimes we are not the best team for them or they may uh, and vice versa. So I think those are some of the hard things that, you know, we go through. But overall, I think my team has been very supportive of uh, the decisions that I have made in the past. Uh, yeah, on both hiring and also uh, other people that might have had to leave the team. So what does the future look like for Select Star, the product and for your team? Uh, we are planning a self-service launch at the end of the year, 
and so that more customers can try out select star without having to go through the demo cycle all the time and that's going to be very exciting uh launch for us and also a new path of growth of both our expanding our team as well as uh, product capabilities afterwards so yeah that's that's the near term future what it would look like let's switch to you chinji who influences the way that you work um name a a builder a cto a ceo really any person name a person you look up to and why anyone that have really influenced the way that i work is my mother so my mom used to be a vice principal of a like a preschool in in korea and after she immigrated to canada she's done like many different jobs that is not office work at all <laughs> seeing her going through that uh, change at an early age it's kind of like a very i think it has definitely made a lot of impact on me she has has a, a big work ethic very hard worker has high standards on top of that she's also very much of a giving person to others and i think that has definitely influenced the way i work today well we talked about a mistake but a little bit different spin if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I actually don't really have an answer to this question. I think I've always tried to like find the best way possible and like sometimes I always I feel like oh I should have done this or I sh- I should have said this. But those are like small things that I don't have anything that I can like remember. But there is always like small things. I'm sure. Like, uh, but like, how how do you know if that was going to actually happen that way? It, like, even if you made that other decision. Well, last question. You're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Yeah, I think that the advice that I give to a lot of young founders uh, and first-time founders uh, usually tends to come back to things like um, focus is like something that's really important. There's always so much to do, and it's really easy to get overwhelmed, especially if you're uh, coming from an engineering background. Uh, you, I think, a lot of people tends to feel like they need to make all every single little decision right. Um, but a lot of the times there's like a, uh, like something like, let's say like incorporation or getting an advisor or, um, a lot of things that ha- already have like a best practices already enabled. So you kind of just have to like follow the traits instead of trying to rebuild the wheel all the time. Um, I think trying to really focus on what, like what should be the first step is <laughs> more important uh, and kind of taking it step by step because otherwise you get overwhelmed with so many other things that you have to take care of. Um, and I think that kind of comes into uh, also like try to, like one thing that I would want to tell a lot of other founders is that, you know, you kind of have to be realistic about where you are and being honest about like uh, how things are going down in order for you to find the like a core issue that needs to get get solved. I mean, this is just like I guess the way that I operate the business. 
because I'm generally very <laughs> correct and that if if something bothers me then I really need to get get it through otherwise it's like it's very hard for me to ignore these things um, yeah and I guess otherwise you know life is short so help each other and you know have fun <laughs> that's I think another important thing you know it's already hard so try to have fun try to work on something that you are uh, excited to work on like every day I think this, these are the things that um, I want young founders to know and uh, it's okay like you know I think a lot of people end up at, uh, uh, attaching their personal values to the company values and that may deteriorate uh, or put an unnecessary burden on their um, mindset uh, but I think just trying to take it more lightly is also important in order for them to uh, be at their best. Because I truly believe that people will be at their best if they are uh, comfortable and they are not afraid of uh, anything and for them to actually uh, continue making um, decisions with confidence. Well, Shinji, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Select Star. Thanks a lot for having me. This was fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.